last Sunday evening, Sarah Wallenjevich went to be with Christ. You know, there are a lot of questions that we have that will never be answered until we're in the presence of God. Anybody that says they have all the answers in any endeavor of life is nuts. But certainly when it comes to spiritual truth. You know, John Calvin said of the Bible, it's God's baby talk. Sometimes it's hard to understand baby talk. But God condescends to give us his word. And it's incumbent upon all of us to learn as much as we can. Because there are answers. You know, it's sort of sickening to me how so often um, in the church, leaders in the church say, you know, there are so many questions. We have no particular answers. The truth is we've got a lot of them. As we said in the first week of our series, the Bible is like a puzzle. And there are pieces all over Scripture that relate to other passages of Scripture. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to say, whenever you come to a text, take the whole of Scripture like an inverted pyramid and place it on that text. Dave Wallenjevich, the father of Sarah, uh, Sunday night in his bedroom, probably around 11 o'clock, made a statement I'll never forget. He said, you know, we've been talking about uh, Satan a lot in this series. But let me tell you one thing, he's not going to win this one. Not only could Satan not win this one, the Bible makes it clear that God knew Sarah before he laid the foundations of the first creation. She was found in Christ. There's no way Satan can win. The fact is, Jesus has won and will win in every life that trusts him. So as we're talking about um, how it all began, setting a context for our own lives and understanding spiritual warfare and victory in Christ, for the past six weeks, we've really been focused on Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Two verses in six weeks. And yet, as we've seen, there are many other scriptures that relate, including 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse... Did I say first? 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your, your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, 
And the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Years ago in Scotland, there was a man who decided to make his way by ship to America. He was a rather poor man, so he had purchased his ticket with almost all of his life savings, and he had a few other shillings in his hand along with his ticket, and he was ready to board the ship, but he thought to himself, I can't afford to spend anything on the ship. I've got to eat. It's two weeks. And so he went and bought a big wheel of cheese and a number of loaves of bread and some crackers. He said, I'm going to make it all the way to America on cheese and crackers and some bread. What he didn't count on was the sea air. He found that something about the air of the sea made him hungry. And so he began to eat the crackers and the bread and within a few days, he had consumed half of what he had brought. To make matters worse, every once in a while, as he sat on the deck, he'd smell the smells from the kitchen, and it made him hungry. And occasionally, though he tried not to, he'd look through the portal windows, and he'd see the buffet line in the main dining room, and he was starving to death. Finally, with one day to go, he's so hungry, all the cheese is gone, all the bread, all the crackers, and he says to himself, I'm going to go and do something about this. So he goes into the steward, and he says, how much to eat the evening meal? The steward said, you have a ticket for this voyage? Let's see it. The man reached in his pocket and pulled out the ticket said, here it is. And the man said, my dear sir, that ticket entitles you to every meal. And every meal is a buffet. Now imagine for two weeks, 13 days, eating hard cheese and soggy crackers when he could have gone into the dining room and he could have eaten every sumptuous meal. You hungry yet? That's a lot like Christians. You know, many Christians I know believe in Jesus. But they don't really trust Him. They're saved by grace through faith, and yet they never really appropriate the blessings of God in their lives. Instead of eating His feast... They eat soggy crackers and hard cheese. You know, for years, evangelists have taken Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him. You know that text. Evangelists have used that by ripping it out of context 
and making it a pretext. How many times have you heard an evangelist say, Jesus is standing by the door of every heart and he's knocking? Ladies and gentlemen, that is an absolute lie. When Jesus speaks that word, he's speaking to John, and it's a message to Christians in churches who've turned their back on Jesus, who've locked their door. He's standing at your door if you're a Christian. And if the door is closed, he's knocking on it. And he's saying, open the door, and I will come in, and I will eat with you. In the Bible, there was no greater expression of fellowship and relationship and love than to sit and eat with someone. And Jesus says to his own, in so many words, why are you closing the door on me? Open it up. I'll come in. You know another passage that's taken out of context? Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It's one of the best-known passages in the Bible, one that's often memorized. It's on the Romans road if you're teach, telling someone about Jesus. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I've heard that text used by preachers to play on the emotions. It's to convict of sin. The wages of sin is death. And so you better stop that wicked stuff. It's used as a hammer. And yet that's not at all what Paul means by that text. He's not talking about sins. He's talking about our natural condition. He doesn't say the wages of sins is death. The wages of sin is death. Someone has said sin is like poison in our bloodstream. And sins are like the boils that result. The boils are bad, but that's not the systemic problem. The problem is the poison. The problem is the nature. The problem is the sin that we're born into. That's what Paul means when he says in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor did they give Him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about every one of us. That's our natural condition. Anybody that will tell you there is no God is a fool. The Bible says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Everyone knows there's God. But they're, they don't honor Him or give Him thanks. They become futile in their thinking. He's talking about every Christian or every person before Christ. You know where he gets it? He gets it from God's judgment. The wages of sin is death. He gets it from the judgment of God. And many people will say, yeah, I know where it starts. It starts in Genesis 3 when God judges Adam. 
God says to Adam, from dust you were taken, and to dust you will return. You will work the dust by the the sweat of your brow, but you came from dust, you're going to return to dust because of your sin. That's God's judgment on Adam, and yet if you look at the balance of Scripture, Adam lives 930 years. Meaning what? Meaning that God's judgment wasn't true? It was absolutely true. In the day that you eat of it, you shall die. How did he die? He died spiritually. His relationship with God was severed. He was completely separate from God. And what does God do? He casts them out of the Garden of Eden. A place of vegetation. A place of perfection. But ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't start in the Garden of Eden with Adam. There is a judgment of God that precedes that judgment. And interestingly, it occurs in a place called Eden. If you look at that text that we've looked at several weeks, Ezekiel chapter 28, you will find that Lucifer was in a place called Eden. But unlike the Eden of this world, it was an Eden not of vegetation, not of lush plants, but rather a place of stones and minerals. There was topaz, and sardis, and carnelian, and all of these stones. And it's amazing when you compare that description in Ezekiel 28 of that Eden to Revelation 21 and the New Jerusalem, you'll see that it's almost identical. The same stones are described. Meaning what? Meaning before there was a Garden of Eden on earth, there was a place called Eden in the presence of God. And that was the place where Lucifer and perhaps other angels praised, worshipped, and served God Almighty. And when Lucifer wills those five wills, I will exalt myself. I will become like the Most High. Remember last week, those five wills? When he wills that will rather than the will of God, God judges him. He casts him out of Eden, just as he does Adam. He separates his relationship with this Lucifer, this most majestic of all angels. And yet, he doesn't destroy him. He could have started over. He could have annihilated Lucifer. He could have created another mighty angel. He could have given him those three responsibilities as prophet, priest, and king. He could have had him, this new angel, with all the dominion over all of creation, but he doesn't. Instead, he casts Lucifer out. He determines to demonstrate once and for all that the wages of sin is death. And yet, he allows him to continue to exist in all of the chaos that comes as a result of divine judgment. Why? 
We said it last week and we'll say it a number of weeks to come. God has a greater purpose. And his purpose in the continuing presence of Satan in this world is to prove once and for all that it is not possible for a creature to live independent of God. You say, now wait a minute. There are a lot of creatures that live independent of God. They don't live spiritually. And when they die, they will face the judgment of hell. The principal reason for God allowing Satan to continue to have his way in this world is to demonstrate that any creature that lives in rebellion to God is destined for futility. You see, a holy God will not permit rebellion. He will not permit it to go unpunished. We see it in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. We see it in Genesis 4 with Cain. We see it in Genesis 7 through 9 with Noah and the flood. We see it in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. We see it in Genesis... I can go on. You know where else we see it? 2 Peter chapter 3. So let's dig in. First of all, notice, if you will, the past. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Now the word perished there literally means to be annihilated, to be utterly destroyed. And for years, I used to read this text from Peter, and I thought he was talking about the flood of Noah. I thought he was talking about the flood that God brought in Noah's day. Now, there are those who say, you know, sometimes you really confuse us because you said, you used to believe this, but now you believe this. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, I used to read this text and see that he was talking about Noah's flood, but now I think he's talking about another flood. I think he's talking about a flood of his own judgment. Why? Because when God sent the flood that flooded the world in Noah's day, the world wasn't destroyed, it wasn't annihilated, it didn't perish. In fact, God says what he will do in that flood, and he says, I will cleanse the earth. You see, I think Peter's talking about another flood. I think he's talking about a more thorough destruction than the flood that came in Noah's day. Rather than God's judgment on men, he's talking about his judgment of Lucifer. Now, I want to hasten to say that I agree with Paul when he writes to the Corinthians and he says, now we see through a mirror or a glass darkly. I mean, there is a lot of mystery in the Bible. There's a lot we don't understand. There's so much in the Bible that we'll never understand before we're face to face with Jesus Christ. But there is other Scripture and there is other evidence in Scripture 
where we can see mysteries becoming much more clear to us. The evidence of Scripture seems to point to the fact that a perfect God who created a perfect universe radically alters that universe in his judgment of Lucifer. Listen to what Jeremiah says in chapter 4. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. To the heavens they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking. All the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man. All of the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all of its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Now, he may be talking poetically. He may be talking about how he feels. Listen to what Job, in Job chapter 9, He who removes mountains, and they know it not, who overturns mountains in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun, and it does not rise, who seals up the stars. Maybe he's talking poetically. Maybe he's talking about how he feels, but maybe he isn't. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 18. The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because of his anger. Now there are some people, some good biblical scholars, who say texts like that are poetic hyperbole. The writer is feeling desperate. He's looking out and seeing all of the carnage around him, and he's hyperbolizing. He's talking about his feelings, not fact. Maybe that's true. But when you think of the holiness of God, and you think of the heinousness of Lucifer's rebellion, it makes total sense to me to say that a holy God blasted apart his creation. He plunged it into darkness. The creation of Genesis 1-1 is blown apart. And when you get to 1-2, you see God remaking, reforming, reshaping what he made out of nothing. Second, notice the pronouncement. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now think about that. According to Peter, God uses the same power that he used to create. The same power he uses to create, he uses to destroy. From the moment in which Lucifer says, I will, five times, I will, a holy God utters a word, and what he has created turns to chaos. God uses his word. Let there be. God said, and it's created. We see that when he reshapes what he destroys. But what Peter indicates here is God uses his word to do the opposite. He uses his word to destroy. 
Martin Luther understood that. 500 years ago, he wrote this hymn in the midst of one of the most difficult, depressing, discouraging times of his life. And you remember that hymn. Let me just quote a lyric to you. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble, not at him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That's what Dave was talking about in the bedroom on Sunday night. His doom is sure. How do we know? Because God creates by His Word and He destroys by His Word. One little word will fell Him. And I want to tell you something. What God does to Lucifer in response to his rebellion, kicks him out of the heavenly Eden, blows up creation, the lights go out. That is just a foretaste of what God will do through his living word, Jesus Christ, in a time that is yet to come. That little word, Jesus Christ, will bring to Satan final and complete destruction. And until then, God has determined to make his existence one of complete everlasting disappointment. The moment he thinks he can get along without God, the moment he thinks he can do it under his own power, he's doomed. And so is every other creature who thinks that. By his word, God topples creation. He turns it into chaos. And yet Lucifer, Lucifer thinks he can make it right. He believes that he can reconstruct the creation. He thinks he can overcome the judgment of God. And in the process, he learns a couple of things. First of all, he learns that he's not omniscient. He doesn't know the future. He learns that he's not omnipotent. He can't do what he wants to do. He can't create. He lifts himself up toward God, and God casts him down, never to allow him to rise again. That's the pronouncement. Then finally, notice the plan. I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Notice what Peter's saying here. He's saying what the Apostle John says. He's saying what the Apostle Paul says. He's saying what the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ says. And you know what that is? That judgment is never the end. Listen to what the Bible says in Genesis 
For the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Why? Because God had blown it apart, His perfect creation. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word hover means to brood. And there's a couple of kinds of brooding. But this brooding, this hovering, is an agrarian term that refers to what a hen does when it sits on its eggs until they hatch. But interestingly, the word brood comes from the German word brute, which means a breath. So think of what the Bible says here in Genesis 1-2. The Holy Spirit of God, like a hen, hovers over the face of the deep and the darkness, the void. And the Holy Spirit breathes a breath into the chaos. And all at once, a new order comes out of the chaos. A new order that God says, it is good. Now I want you to know, this is not plan B. This isn't a new plan. There's nothing in Scripture to suggest that it is a plan that God devises after Lucifer's rebellion. In fact, it's an eternal plan. It's an eternal plan that Satan had no way of knowing. Imagine his surprise. You say, wait a minute, before we go on to his surprise, how do you know it's eternal? I know it for a number of reasons. Before the foundations of the world were laid, he knew you in Christ. There are a host of scriptures that indicate that your eternal salvation was determined before the world was created, let alone your creation in your mother's womb. And Lucifer had no way of knowing it. He doesn't know the future. Can you imagine his surprise? So God allows another kind of brooding. And this is a brooding that many of you are familiar with. Maybe you've done it a lot. You've gone to somebody who's down and discouraged. What are you thinking about? Oh, no. How are you doing? I feel feel terrible. What's wrong? I just can't get it out of my mind. I'm brooding. I think that's what Lucifer did. All he could think about is the injury to his pride. Can you imagine the hatred he had building for God? A God who guarantees that his doom is sure. A God who said, you will be destroyed. And yet he isn't yet destroyed. Someone has said, there is no picture more dreadful than the thought of Satan roaming in the midst of a destroyed creation, calling out, let there be light, and there's no light. 
Can you imagine what Satan must feel? In the midst of all of the destruction, remember he had control and dominion over the creation, and all at once it's evaporated. It's dark. And he thinks in his pride that he can create, and he can't create anything. That's the path Satan walks. And that's the path every creature walks who wills to be free from God, their Redeemer. That's the path we all once walked. Following our darkened minds, following the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians chapter 2. You know, it's so plain to me. You know what really makes it plain? When something tragic happens, something horrific, something you can't control, and you look and you see others who are brooding, they run from God. They get high. They get drunk. They bury themselves in the flesh to escape the reality that they can't create anything. They can't fix it. There's only one who can. And the path they're walking is the path Satan has walked and is walking and will continue to walk until God brings the final judgment on him. Willing their own will rather than the will of God. Never knowing that it's only the will of God that will bring them the peace and the rest and the security and the joy that He wants them to have. You know what it's like? It's like being on a lifetime voyage. Munching on soggy crackers. And trying to fill up on rancid cheese when God offers you a buffet at every meal. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't know about you, but I'd rather eat His buffet. I'm big on buffets. Especially if Jesus Christ is the meal. Think about that. Amen.